This is what McDonald said. This is a quote. NASA had become too successful. They had gotten by for a quarter of a century and never had lost a single person going into space. They had rescued the Apollo 13 halfway to the moon when part of the vehicle blew up. Seemed like it was an impossible task, but they did it. So how could this cold O-ring cause a problem when they had done so much over the past years to be successful? All of this success gives you a little bit of arrogance you shouldn't have, but they hadn't stumbled yet, and they just pressed on. Have you ever considered the extent that pride permeates your life? Have you? Have you ever thought for a moment how deep and how wide is pride in your life? Consider for a moment our complaints against God and his activities or inactivities. Oh, we may look at Peter and shake our heads and say, how can Peter rebuke the Son of God? But yet, how many of us, in our own way, rebuke the Son of God? How many of us have questioned God's allowances in the world or God's lack of activity in the world? We see the depth of pride's permutation in our complaints. Complaints are nothing more than us saying that God does not know what He's doing and that we know better. And there is no one here that is innocent of that charge. Life's highest absurdity is the creature judging its Creator. Who are we to question His love and care? As though we know what either of those words mean. We may know their definition, but I'm going to say this this morning, we most definitely like their demonstration. We sing how great, our, how great is our God, while our hearts tell us those words would be true if God would only do as I ask. Boy, it's easy to come into worship and lay your head back and sing to the top of your lungs when every prayer you've prayed and everything you wanted God to do has happened in the past week. But that's not real worship. Real worship is when you can sing that song when God makes no sense and when God has gone a long time without answering a prayer. Or when God has acted in such a way as though He is answering your prayers contrary to the way you've prayed them. Anybody ever had those kind of prayers answered? The, the contrary kind of prayers? Mm -hmm. If you believe in God and this belief comes from the reading of Scripture, how can you question 
Well, let me, let me back up. Pride is often subtle, and other times it is overt. Conversations with statements such as, I believe in God, but I'm not sure about everything that I read in the Bible. If you believe in God, and this belief comes from reading the Scripture, how can you question those parts of Scripture which you disagree with? I mean, just think about this for a second. If you can believe that God has always existed and that He created the world out of nothing, then everything else should be a piece of cake to believe. (laughs) Uh, You realize the absurdity of that, right? That God exists and has always existed and there's not ever been a time that He has not existed. That's a pretty huge step of faith. Matter of fact, when you start talking like that, some people might think that you need to have a white jacket and be inside a room with padded walls. Because it seems not to be logical. And then you want to go out on, a, on a, out on the limb even further and say, yeah, and oh, by the way, he created everything that we see out of nothing and there wasn't anything that was made that he didn't make whether invisible or visible. I just want to say something to you this morning. If you can believe Genesis 1, you can believe every other word of the Bible. Because every bit of it after that is pretty easy to believe. Because you've already taken the largest, biggest leap of faith that any human being could ever take. And my question is, if we don't question Genesis 1, which is probably the hardest part of the Bible to believe, why in the world do we question or even doubt the rest of what he tells us? And the other part of it is, if he's done such a good job of of running the world, what makes you think that he can't do a good job of running your life? A sunrise and a sunset should always remind us that God is in control. No matter what the circumstances are like in our life, He is in control. And He has made certain promises to us. I I know we had uh, 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 some rain. Well, we've had a lot of rain here lately, but there was in particular, it seemed like one day a couple of weeks ago where some rain came through and I saw tons of people on Facebook posting pictures of rainbows, even double rainbows. I think Kristen had even posted a picture of a double rainbow. And you look at that and you're just reminded, right? Some 6,000, 7,000 years ago, God flooded this world. And he made a promise. He, He stuck a bow in the sky and he said... This is my promise that this will never happen again. And guess what? It hasn't. How can you know what to agree with and disagree with unless you're God? That's what happens when we start questioning God. I mean, who are you to determine what's believable and not believable? To do so makes you God. You can believe in creation, the cross, and the resurrection, but you can't believe in eternal punishment Gender identity and, 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 and biblical sexuality. When we subtract these truths from who God is, we create a God of our own design. 
For many of us, such questioning is not an issue. However, we are all guilty of different levels of suggesting that we know better than God. In our minds, we have an idea of how God should act. He promises to provide for us, right? Everybody knows those promises, right? My God shall supply all of my needs according to His riches and glory. The problem with that verse is, we want to dictate to God the terms of the needs that He should supply. Anybody got a little dictator running around inside of them? Just everybody go ahead and just raise your hand. Say, yeah, I do. I got a little dictator living on inside of me. Promises assuring us the fulfillment of our needs, yet we we should decide what that need is. He promises to work out everything for our good and His glory. And we're okay with that as long as we get to determine the outcome. None of us are innocent of such thoughts. We may think we hide them well, but we don't. We don't. Instead, we reveal them through our anxieties and fears. Anybody in here get a little anxious and fearful? Well, you know what that is, right? You don't like the way God's running the universe. You're anxious and fearful because whatever's happening to some degree is outside of your hands. But yet, we lack enough faith and trust that He's got everything in His hands. He really does have the whole world in His hands. He's got you and me in His hands. The root of our anxieties and fears is nothing more than pride. Our pride says, I know better. We want God. We want a God we contain, not a God we can trust. I'm say that to you one more time. You know what your sin and my greatest sin is? Is we want a God that we contain, not a God that we have to trust. We want a God that we can control. Isn't that what Peter's doing in this moment? Isn't he trying to control Jesus? Isn't that why he pulls him aside? Jesus, you don't really understand, so let me help you out here. (laughs) There's not going to be any of this suffering. There's not going to be any of this rejection. Surely there's not going to be any of this dying. And what in the world are we talking about? Resurrection. We are not the first people to have this problem. Peter is our... Great example. Our text teaches us that Jesus' disciples needed to learn that Jesus cannot be tamed, but that Jesus must be trusted. Peter's confession in the previous verses proves their conviction that Jesus is the Messiah. They know He's the Messiah. They, They have trusted Him to that point. In today's text, Peter tries to convince Jesus of what it means to be the Messiah. See, they believe that Jesus came to save them, but just... Jesus didn't have the right perception of what that salvation should look like. So what Peter's trying to do is like, oh, no, 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 no. Lord, look, that's not what the Messiah does. This is what the Messiah does. We laugh at that, but that's us. That's, That's the way we come to God on many occasions in our life. 
In today's text, Peter tries to convince, uh, convince Jesus what it means to be the Messiah. They're not sure that Jesus even knows what his role really is. So Peter steps in to help Jesus understand what that means. So let's take just a moment and back up and set the context. In Mark 6, 1 through chapter 8, verse 30, we saw the disciples struggle to understand Jesus fully, right? It wasn't until last week that they even come out and say, that he is the Messiah. Now they've been saying he's the son of God, but last week was the first time in all of the Bible that anybody had put together, this is Christ, the son of God. Their blindness was like that of the blind man Jesus healed using multiple touches. We see their need for multiple touches and we see Jesus touching them over and over and over again. The effect of Jesus' ministry is seen in their confession of him as Messiah In last week's sermon, when Peter and others confessed Jesus as Messiah, they said, you are our Redeemer and our Deliverer, the one who will establish an eternal kingdom and reign forever. Now, while their confession was true, listen, it was not complete. While they they fully believed their confession, they still did not fully understand what that confession meant. Remember what they expected. A Messiah who would come and defeat their enemies, would establish his kingdom, and who would reign and rule and keep his people in perfect peace. All of that is true about Jesus from the Old Testament. And this, and so their understanding of what Jesus should be was not wrong, it's just their timing was wrong. Their timing was wrong. After Peter's confession, Jesus begins to teach them what it means, what, what, it, what it means for him to be a Messiah. First, in Mark 8, 31, he tells them that he must suffer, experience rejection, and die. And what did they do? They rebuked him. They all are rebuking Jesus. Peter's just the one who is voicing the rebuke, which is where this message started. When we question God's activities or inactivities, we are, in essence, rebuking Jesus. Peter, like us, thought he knew better than Jesus. So Peter is telling Jesus, Jesus, you don't have the right plan. And Jesus' response reminds us that it is foolish to think that we are wiser than God. Now his disciples have declared him for the first time to be Messiah. And Jesus begins to teach them what it means. But see, he doesn't only want them to know what it means. He wants them to know what to expect. And hey, next week, he, he kind of unrolls that in further detail, the expectations of what it means to follow him. Right now, he's talking about, he's setting the expectations of what he's about to go through. You know what I'm really glad about Jesus? Is that Jesus does not cover up. What's going to happen? Jesus is very explicit to his followers about the nature of what life will be like when you follow Jesus, right? Did did Jesus say it's all going to be a bed of roses? No, Jesus said that, hey, if this is happening to your teacher, who are you to think anything less can happen to you? Jesus says, in this world you will have Tribulation. 
But take heart, I've overcome the world. The question is, will, will we trust Him with what we hear? Jesus teaches them that to be the Messiah means He must suffer, be rejected, die, and after three days rise again. And Mark says He said this to them plainly. None of us can think about Jesus without thinking about the cross, right? Like when you hear the name Jesus, isn't that one of the first ideas that comes into your head is the cross? But let me say something to you, and, and let me help us this morning not be so quick to be down on the disciples. Though the cross is what we, uh, is what we automatically affiliate Jesus with, these disciples could not conceive in any form or fashion that Messiah would go to a cross. They can't conceive of a Jesus who will suffer and die, while we can easily believe in one who will. They could not imagine a Messiah who would die, even though the Old Testament taught this reality. They believed in a Messiah who would destroy their enemies. And again, that's right, but just not right now. The Old Testament pointed to a Messiah coming as king to establish an everlasting kingdom. But that's not all it says. It also says that this king in Isaiah 53 who is coming must suffer and die. Now, that kind of sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? How can you come and be the king and rule and reign forever and yet die? This is what the disciples are hearing. They, they hear a contradiction. But God didn't have two different plans. This apparent contradiction is a cohesive plan of salvation. Suffering doesn't cancel out the kingdom. Listen, it creates the kingdom. So Jesus establishes the kingdom through suffering. Rejection, death, and resurrection. Notice in verse 31, Jesus says about this, that this must happen. These four events that he spoke of must happen for the kingdom to come. Jesus is not rejected by those whom he would, we would expect, the Gentiles and the most outwardly uh, uh, wicked. Instead, he's rejected really by those uh, uh, who should have received him. They despised him because he did not, listen, he did not fit their idea of a Messiah or their expectation of a Messiah. The disciples don't get it either. How can he be Messiah and not be accepted by the religious leaders of the day? We who are familiar with, this, with the story can't understand their blindness. Hindsight gives us an advantage here, right? We know why he must suffer. Only through suffering can we have the forgiveness of sin, right? We're all born sinners. We're all born enemies of God, separated from God, unable to reconcile ourselves to Him. We need a mediator, an advocate. We need a substitute. Sin demands a payment, and praise God, He had a plan devised before time began to accomplish all of that. Hindsight gives us the advantage. We can see how the lion, the conquering king, is also the lamb that was slain. We hear, these, we, we hear these words, and it is good news to us. 
It is the reason we gather. It's the reason we sing this morning. It's the reason why we have hope and joy this morning. Yet for these men, it was difficult for them to comprehend that the Messiah would sit on the throne of David forever, and yet he would suffer and die. How can he be a lion that's king and a lamb that is slain? Jesus' words require confrontation, and so Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Crazy, right? Peter rebukes Jesus because what he is saying makes no sense. The word for rebuke is used in Mark 1 to describe Jesus' actions concerning demons. It's a strong and assertive word. Mark's gospel tells us that Peter rebukes Jesus while Matthew's gospel, look right here, it's on the screen, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Do you notice the difference between Jesus and Peter? Jesus said, This must happen, and Peter says, Nope, it ain't ever going to happen. We are all prone to thinking we know better than God. I can't say that enough this morning because it's so true. Peter only has room for a Messiah who is a lion, but not one who is a lamb as well. Peter believes he knows more than Jesus. Instead of humbling, submitting to the teachings of Christ, he becomes proud. Instead of recognizing his position as a servant, he puts himself in the place of authority. And instead of seeking to understand, he is seeking to control Jesus. Before we throw Peter under the bus, we should remember our own doubts and questions. We've all acted like Peter, positioning ourselves, at least in our hearts, against God because we don't understand what he's doing. Most of us are too spiritual to say those words out loud, right? Yet our actions betray us. We are, we are filled with fear and worry. We constantly complain, all because we think we know better. Aren't you glad that Peter could not win this argument with Jesus? Hey, aren't you glad you haven't won some of your arguments with Jesus? Oh, some of you think, you know what? If God would have only given me what I wanted, life would be so much better. And really the reality of it is, is that you've lost those arguments and Jesus has given you what is far better. I think the great theologian Garth Brooks was possibly right when he wrote those infamous words. God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. But I really think what it is, is God's greatest gift is He doesn't give in to our arguments. And you know why He doesn't? Because He's the best dad ever. And Jesus said if you evil fathers know how to give your, your children good gifts, how much more will your heavenly father do? And if you've been a parent, you know the pain of denying requests to your children because you know to grant the request would be for their detriment, not their benefit. Listen, our God is working out all things for our salvation. 
His plan does not always make sense, but if you don't remember anything else, I want you to remember this. His plan may not always make sense, yet it can always be trusted. Jesus returns the rebuke. <laughs> Peter rebuked him privately, but Jesus rebukes Peter publicly. And you may say, well, I wonder why he did that. That, that just kind of seems mean of Jesus. Why didn't he just quietly whisper into Peter's ear, get behind me, Satan? Why did he, he have to do it publicly? Again, because Peter was only the mouthpiece of what all the other disciples were saying and thinking as well. So they all needed to be rebuked. When Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, he is not inferring that the devil possesses Peter. Instead, he is simply using strong language to point out the severity of the offense. In essence, Jesus is saying, you are asking me to do what only the devil himself would ask me to do. Do you remember Satan's actions towards Jesus in the wilderness when he was fasting for 40 days? Satan did not want Jesus to be crucified. He wants him to sin and to abandon the plan of salvation. How does Peter go from confessing Christ to being rebuked by Christ for his satanic suggestion? And here we close. How did Peter get to this point? Two verses ago, he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. To only a few verses later, from him pulling Jesus aside, saying, No, Jesus, that's never going to happen, even though you said it must happen. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. How do we get to that point? How did Peter arrive in such a short period of time from one place to the other? And that is simply what Jesus says at the end of verse 33. There it is on the screen. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The disciples were looking horizontally, not vertically. The, this mindset is our Achilles heel. We are so earthly minded, we are no heavenly good. No wonder we trust our wisdom and not that from above. No wonder we think we know better than the one who made us. No wonder we choose the road of least resistance over the one less traveled. Life is simple in that there are two ways to see life. The way God does or the way that you do. R.C. Sproul called this the great divide between godliness and godlessness. The godly person is deeply concerned about the things of God, but the godless person does not care because they are preoccupied with the world around them. I hope this morning that we all here desire to be among the godly. If we were all honest this morning, we would confess that we are often more like the godless. We set our eyes on the things we can see and trust the things that we can't control. If this is true, listen, if that is true and it is of us, then we who claim to be Christians must, be, must begin to push back in our lives. We need to begin to ask ourselves some hard questions. So let me end, end with some hard questions this morning. What's ruling our hearts this morning? What do we desire that we feel like we can't let go of? What are we craving that we think we must have? Who or what is receiving our worship? These are questions that help us to decipher whether or not we are setting our minds on the things of God or on the things of this world. We see in the text that Peter had firmly 
held beliefs. He rightly believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he had an incomplete understanding. This incomplete understanding led him to stand for untrue things. It's a reminder of the need to continue to understand what God says so the things that we stand for are right and true. The Christian life, have you ever heard this? It's a journey. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Peter's confession of Christ was not the end, but listen, but it was the beginning of his faith. And today's text makes it clear that Peter still has a long ways to go in his journey. How many of us still have a long ways to go in our journey this morning? Notice once again Jesus' patience with his disciples. He doesn't remove them. Right? He doesn't run them off, say, just get out of here. I've had enough of you, you, you dumb disciples. You should know by now, but here you are. I am frustrated and tired like he was with the Pharisees and the Sadducees last week. He doesn't let out the big sigh. He doesn't remove them, but he rebukes them. He is not damning them. He is disciplining them. He is not lashing out at them. He is loving them. So i got this last verse for you this morning. Listen to these words. This is how Jesus will treat us when we treat him with rebuke. Are you ready? Now watch. And have you not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now everybody pay attention to the words. Everybody hone in. Watch the words. Sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. So who is, who is God talking to? Children. Children. I'm talk, he's talking to his kids. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as what? Sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. There's not one good father who keeps discipline from his children. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are what? Illegitimate, which means you're not a son. You're not a child of God. Go on to the next verse. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share holiness, right? But you know what, you know what that is? That we share in Him. That's who He is. God is holy. For the moment, all discipline seemed painful. Amen. Rather than pleasant. No doubt. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness that those who have been... Uh, righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know what? Where would Peter be if Jesus had withheld his discipline? Discipline is the... Con- Confirmation of sonship. It does not stun our growth. It stimulates our growth. Are you currently experiencing the discipline of God? Then I pray you would respond to it well. Don't double down on your pride and blow up your chest to God. Instead, humbly submit to what He's teaching you. 
Following Christ is a life of limited knowledge and ultimate trust. Let me rephrase that. Unlimited trust. If we are to trust God, especially when He does not make sense, we must set our mind on things that are above. David, come on. Let us resist our tendency to rebuke and learn to rest in our faithful Father working for our good and His glory. Listen, God is a big enough God that He can withstand our rebuke without running us off. But He's too good of a dad to let our rebuke go undisciplined. God loves you. God loves you. Something that I learned, and some of you who have been down this road know what I'm talking about. When Brandy and I got into foster care, and we were bringing kids into our home, and we've had several, we would always tell our foster children, this is going to be tough. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. Why? Because you've never been in part of a family. You've never really been loved, right? And a family that really loves you and really cares about you will do whatever is necessary to keep you from destroying yourself. And part of that's called discipline. Time out, the corner. I don't know, whatever. I don't, there's all kinds of ways to discipline. Good old hand on the rear end, you know, that doesn't border on child abuse. It's all kinds of ways to discipline. But listen, discipline doesn't mean that I don't love you. It means that I love you. And can you remember as a child when you were disciplined, even if it was out of bounds, even if your parents went out of bounds with their discipline, let, let's just let's push that aside for a second and think about this. Most parents, even if their discipline went a little out of bounds, what was their intent? I told you not to do that because that is the worst thing for your life and you did it anyway and you did it anyway and because I love you I can't let that slide by because I don't want you to repeat that behavior again really what are they trying to do save you from who you what is Jesus doing here with Peter? He rebukes Peter. He disciplines Peter. Why? Because he knows that without this in Peter's life, Peter will never become the person that Peter ultimately becomes. And listen, and you'll never become the person that God ultimately wants you to be without God's discipline in your life. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. It just means he's doing something really, 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 really big in your life for the future. Hey, listen. 
God does have big plans for His children. I believe that. God's got big plans for His children. And God's got plans for every one of you that claim to be His child. But the only way to get there is that we've got to trust. And if we don't trust, and if we spend our time questioning where we should be trusting, God will discipline us so that we'll learn to trust. Because trust is the only way we walk down the road to get to where He wants us to be. So here's something I want you to consider praying as David leads us in this final song. Every person in this room struggles with their pride. We, we treat the Lord much like Peter treated the Lord. We will question Him. We will accuse Him. Many of us are worried and anxious and stressed out and on the verge of collapsing, and we are just, I mean, we are fried and frenzied and, 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 and just about to fall over in exhaustion, all because instead of trusting God in the moment, we're trying to tell God what to do in the moment. Don't, don't make your prayer, God, here's what I need you to do. Make your prayer, God, you know what I need to be. Make me that person and help me to trust you in the process. Let's pray. Father, in these next moments, that's what many of us need to do. We need, we need to quit trying to tell you like Peter tried to tell Jesus, no, this is what the Messiah is going to be like. This is what it means to be Messiah. And, and Father, many of us continually try to tell you how to be God because we think that we really do know better of how, to, of how to run our life and how to answer our prayers and, 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 and how to fix what's broken. And many of us are frustrated and we're weary and we're on our last leg and we're about ready to give up. But you have sent your messenger this morning to say, no, what you need to do is you really need to begin to trust me. Trust my love and care for you. I will meet every need that you have according to my riches, not according to your, your ways and your will. I will, do, I will bring good of every event in your life may not be in the way that you see good, but it will be good. Trust me in the short term so that you can see the result in the long. Father, this is deep heart work this morning and a work that only you can do. So as we sing this final song, Father, I pray that as the song says, that many will come to the altar. Maybe not this physical altar, though they can, but many would just come to the altar right now before you and say, Jesus, I need you to, at this altar, alter my life, alter my way of thinking. Help me to think on things above 
and not on the things of this world so that I can start trusting you more. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing this final song.